Okay. Um, today we'll be talking about the Mamluks and the Ottomans. This is post-Crusades all the way up through what we, what we consider to be 20th century uh, Jerusalem. So this will be from, uh, from the end of the Crusades all the way up through um, the late 1800s, 1900s. Don't write it down, print it out. Don't write it down, print it out. I'm just giving you a timeline here. As I just said, Saladin comes in and conquers Jerusalem. There's a few of those little crusades coming afterwards, but um, the Mamluks will end up coming to power, and uh, they will make some changes to Jerusalem, because that's what we're concerned with. And then the Ottomans will come to power. Suleiman the Magnificent will become the key player there. They will make some changes to Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will ultimately become this backwater place, and I, and I use that term somewhat accurately, I think. It just becomes a place that wasn't really that important. Christianity had Rome, um, uh, Islam had Mecca and Medina, um, and the Jews were still spread all throughout uh, the Near East and Europe. Um, and it's not until late in the Ottoman period that we begin to see migration towards the ancient holy land which we call Zionism. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end of today's lecture. Um, so it was just kind of this place that, so during the Ottoman period, it was just a place that didn't uh, draw that much attention uh, until we get down to 1918 and the British mandate at the end of World War I. I'll write it down. I'm going to go through all of this right now. So what's a Mamluk? A, mom, a Mamluk is from the, the word to, meaning slave or to be owned. Okay, and it's a uh, kind of a, a soldier, a slave origin, who had become Islam. Okay, it became kind of a, I don't want to say a caste, but it became kind of a movement, if you will. It was a phenomenon, um, and it became, it actually became very, very powerful. Um, over the time, over time, Mamluks uh, became a powerful military movement, in particular in Egypt. Uh, so Egyptian Islam uh, was really came to be controlled. Uh, by the Mamluks, uh, but also in, in the Levant, in Iraq, India, they held a lot of political and military power. In some cases, they attained the rank of sultan, um, but others just held uh, regional power uh, positions. Um, at one point in Egypt and in Syria, they actually seized all the power, so they became control, and that's why we're, we're talking about them here. Um, one of the things, one of the differentiations we see between this is Hajj, Hajj, the pilgrimage, came to be associated with Mecca. You're commanded to go on Hajj to Mecca. But um, we, have this, we have this idea that this Yerah, the, the visit to Jerusalem. And specifically, it's to, uh, to visit the, if I remember correctly, the um, visitation of Muhammad and his family members. So Hajj is, is means go to Mecca, but the Ziyara was was to visit usually the remains of, of Muhammad and his and his immediate family. Um, it was a, it's more of a Shia, it's more of a phenomenon in Shia Islam. Um, but because Muhammad was said to have gone to Jerusalem and then jump up into the sky and go on his night journey, Jerusalem became uh, a place continued to be a place associated with not a full on Hajj, which was to Mecca, but it still became a place of pilgrimage. There are lots of anthologies made in praise of Jerusalem um, during this period. And of course, as we mentioned, uh, Muhammad not only went on a night journey from here, but uh, he also said that the one who lives in Jerusalem is considered a warrior of the jihad. That is, if you go to Jerusalem, you're there to fight the fight of God, which is in a very similar vein of what the Crusaders had done, right? If you go to Jerusalem, you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can fight on behalf of God, a soldier for God. So the reason I mention this is that Jerusalem is becoming a religious center, even more than it already has been. It's becoming an ideal. Okay? Uh, Muslims are firmly in control of the city, okay? but it's becoming a religious center for Islam as well. It also became politically and militarily insignificant. Just as significant as it became religiously, it just became not that big of a deal. 
uh, politically or militarily. Uh, it was used as a place of political exile at times. Um, uh, we, we remember from last lecture that the walls were actually dismantled, which means you can't really you know, have it as a seat of power because it's easy to come in and, and uh, wipe people out from there. And only the citadel was restored in 1310. So you can see that Jerusalem is transitioning from a political power or an administrative power, which it had been in the past, even during the Crusader period, this kingdom of Jerusalem, to a purely religious idea. Jerusalem was an idea now. It wasn't necessarily the seat of power. Mecca had risen. You had uh, uh, um, Islamic rulers ruling out of Syria, out of Egypt, out of Iraq, out of modern Iraq, Baghdad. And Jerusalem kind of faded as an administrative power. They, they inherited some things, but, but they did things a bit differently. We'll just talk about them. There we go. Um, <coughs> under Mamluk control of Jerusalem, the Haram, under the Haram of Sharif, uh, the, the former temple, temple Mount, was developed quite a bit, and the Mamluks did a lot of construction, including building schools, hospices, uh, hostels. They used the crusader structures that were built up during the crusades as quarries for stone, or incorporated their walls. Uh, uh, two bathhouses were said to be built. These were public places where you could go and, and uh, not, not just take baths, but, but uh, kind of be together kind of a social meeting place, but also uh, do your business there. Um, they uh, created colonnaded madrasas. We'll look at some of them. Uh, and these are built around the Haram. The, um, the, we'll, we'll take a picture, uh, take a look here at a picture of the cotton market. Um, and then they enlarged the earlier crusader markets. But only two new mosques were built one of which is the Friday Mosque in the Citadel. And then, of course, there's a, a short period, 1351 to 1353, Jerusalem suffers from the plague. The plague actually breaks out a little bit there. And so here's another picture of a, a Mamluk cavalryman. The, the idea to keep in mind is that Mamluks were, again, Kind of an ideology, kind of a kind of a movement. They were the, they weren't the, the rich aristocratic people. But they were kind of slaves, and then these slaves kind of did this uprising, and they became this this ideology, kind of like uh, being an American. What, what what is being an American? Is it being rich? Is it being poor? Is it being a, it's it's kind of this ideology that was built over this idea of melting pot and diversity, and that any everybody has an equal chance. Uh, and that, that anybody can you know, have opportunity, this kind of thing. Um, these saw themselves as slaves, saw themselves as servants, who then rose to power over time. These are the Mamluks. Let's look at some of the things they did to Jerusalem specifically. Um, um, what you see with them, you have, you have colors in Islam, right? The, the formal color of Islam is green. You always see, you, or at least you usually see in a lot of Islamic countries, a green flag that was kind of the color, I believe, of Muhammad, the prophet himself was green. But reds are also very big, and uh, blacks. So blacks, reds, and greens. Here are the Mamluks uh, do a lot of alternating red and white stone courses. Uh, they use a lot of domes in their architecture. They used a, de a decorative technique called makarna that um, that is inside of the domes and above entrances. And where we're speaking about, I don't know if you can see it, but these things right in here. And they're, they're basically, when you take a, uh, a type of cobbling used, it's, it's very specific to Islamic architecture, Persian architecture. But what you do is you, anytime you're basically putting a dome over a square building, for those of you architecture folks, you have to find a way to match the edges. And so this is a way to cobble and pinch together see this kind of architecture, you can associate it typically with Mamluk or imitation of Mamluk architecture. Um, a lot of times you see alternating black and white inlay, or stone designs and entrances and walls, and of course, monumental entrances. 
So this, for example, is the entrance to the cotton market. And we'll look inside of it in just a second. So once you get inside, yeah, right? It's a good old market. Has anybody been up and down the souks and the seeks in, in Jerusalem? This is a ball. I, one of my favorite things to do is go to the old city and just walk up and down the old markets and literally get lost. Just walk up and down and everybody's yelling at you and there's stuff hanging everywhere. You, you, you have to you have to barter, you have to uh, go back and forth. You always want to try to cut the price down. Um, there's a whole other thing going to that way. Um, it's just a good old shop. Lots of people sell the same things and it's just it's just a, a competition if you will. The market. It's a lot of fun. You also have madrasas. What are, what's a madras? What's a madras? What's a madrasa? What? School? Islamic school? Uh, this one in particular is called the, uh, the third jewel of Jerusalem, right? After the Dome of the Rock and the Al Aqsa Mosque. So some of these schools actually gain uh, a very uh, important reputation. This one was built in 1482 by the Sultan al-Ashraf, hence his name, named after him. Um, his reign remarkable for the number of fine buildings erected by him. So the Mamluks are actually coming in and building on top of the Crusaders. Again, you have this idea. And when you go to Jerusalem, and I encourage everyone to do this at least once, so I'm not encouraging to make a pilgrimage, but I'm going to go there and see what I'm talking about. The city is built on top of itself. Even the Church of Holy Sepulchre is chapel upon chapel upon chapel. The whole city is built on top of, of itself in form of things. Let's keep looking here. Just showing the pictures. Okay. On the northwestern corner of the Haram, you've got the, and I want to make sure I say this right, the Gabanima Minaret. It's built in 1298 by the judge, by the chief judge of Jerusalem. And again, they're reusing uh, crusader columns and capitals to build it. It's still there. And it's actually built on the foundations of the Umayyad minaret. What's a minaret? You usually see them associated with mosques, sometimes more than one. A minaret's that big, tall tower um, from which the traditional adhan is given, the, the call to prayer. If you've ever heard one of one of my favorite things to do every every time I go to Jerusalem is to be near hopefully your hotel or your hostel or everything is near one of these. And all of a sudden out of the out of the this, and they have them uh, five times a day, right? Muslims are are uh, asked to pray five times a day. And you'll hear this adhan or call to prayer. I put a couple of these uh, recordings of these on the course website so you can hear them. And I won't say I won't try to do one here. But it's it's, uh, it's literally Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, and it's uh, but it's sung, right? Allahu Akbar. <laughs> and, and what it is is it's a traditional call to prayer. And when you hear that, you're supposed to stop what you're doing and go either to the mosque or get out your prayer mat and pray. And it's it's kind of now is the time that we all come to pray. And it's beautiful. If you ever hear this, even if you don't understand it, it's just these these uh, the people singing their heart. And they're they're traditionally sung without uh, any kind of amplification from the top of the minaret. You know, here and get up there and they'll start screaming really loud and singing this beautiful thing, inviting people to come and pray. Nowadays, they're usually done with a PA system. Sometimes, or usually now, probably more often than not, they're recorded. Kind of like a church bell says, come and pray. This is the Adhan from the top of the minaret. They also built the Mamluks a lot of charitable foundations. So they're doing a lot of good in, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in three main areas, they're building these. One on the Haram Sharif. Outside of the Haram, they're also building um, a lot, quite a bit, especially on the north and western side. And then along the streets running from east, uh, running east from the Jaffa Gate uh, to the Bab al-Silsila and the western wall of the Haram. A lot of these uh, places are kind of combinations. 
what, what I mean by that is they are kind of a school plus a public water fountain uh, plus a hospice of some sort. So you can come and get all your needs taken care of. Right? Sometimes they include a mausoleum. increased importance, the, the practice of burial near the Haram increased in importance from the late 13th century, this is CE, as the eschatological traditions grew that linked Jerusalem, especially the Haram, with the final place of judgment. Remember when we talked about, uh, not, not, not only the Haram, but um, the what? Was said to be in Islam the final place of judgment. What was it? Not, yeah, the door of the chain. Not the door of the door the chain. And as that tradition grew, you begin to see more and more burials uh, take place near to the Haram, right? near to the to the Herod's old uh, temple, uh, the retaining platform. Um, and these are all kinds of different traditions. Uh, some traditions in the Jewish in the Jewish tradition is when the Messiah comes, he's going to come from the east, and he'll walk across the graves, and those graves over which he walks first will be raised from the dead first these kinds of traditions. But it becomes a holy site. So not only do you go there to pray and to worship, but you also want to be buried there, or at least as close as possible, without defiling the place. And so we see a lot of things building up around the Haram uh, during the Mongol period. Uh, did I go too fast? Another minute. Any questions thus far? So we've got towers going up on the Haram, <coughs> minarets being added. Um, the northern colonnade is added. And then, of course, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this is what's on the next slide here. Uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, are being restored continually after every time they're, they're knocked down by an earthquake or some kind of damage. So the Mamluks really are concerned with making Jerusalem the, uh, not an administrative center, Right? but uh, an ideological center, enhancing the beauty of this place, not just for the tourism, not just for the, for the visits there from the, from the faithful, uh, but also to build up this ideological notion of Jerusalem. Again, if, if, if in your religious tradition, this is the place of final judgment, probably not a bad idea to take care of it and to show it some kindness. Which we'll, all be, uh, we'll all be visiting there. Uh, let, me, let me show you on a map here what we're talking about. Can you see the orange dots, the red dots here? These are the actual the, the buildings during the Mongol period. As we said, it's focused on the Haram. You see it on the northern wall here, which is modern-day Islamic Quarter. And you see it on the northern part of the western wall, which is basically Islamic Quarter. So this area here today has become the, the, the Muslim Quarter in Jerusalem. Uh, why is that? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that that's where a lot of the building is focused on. The whole city is Islamic, right? The Muslims control, the Muslims control the city. Um, what else? Um, here you can see, this is an older picture, you can tell a little bit there. Um, the Kaifei Sabil, right, this is a, a water fountain uh, in the foreground built between 1468 and some other phenomenon taking place, and that is, it becomes a growing center for Jews, which is interesting, right? So for, uh, for instance, <coughs> uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Moise, Moses ben Nachman, or in Greek you'd say Nachmanides, son of Nachman, um, makes Aliyah in 1267. What is Aliyah? comes from the Hebrew word meaning what? To go what? Up. To go up. And remember from reading earlier on, 
Jerusalem sits on top of a couple hills, right? So you always, when you read uh, biblical texts, you always see a going up to Jerusalem. And so-and-so went up to Jerusalem, right? And it's this idea of going to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, going up the mountain, um, that becomes this ideal within Judaism. Not necessarily physically, which is one of the key transitions that um, Nachmanides makes. <clears throat> um, he founds the Ramban synagogue, Ramban, Ramban synagogue. <clears throat> Do not confuse this with Ramban, which is Maimonides, Moses Maimonides. And it's an acronym, right? Uh, Rabbi Moses ben Nachman, R-M-B-N, Ramban. That's what they call him, Ramban. So he founds the synagogue, um, which later becomes a Jewish center. Rambam is Rabbi Moshe ben uh, uh, Um It attracts Jews. He, he, he uses this as a way to get Jews to come and study with him. Right? He argues that Aliyah, this, this idea of going up to Jerusalem, uh, is uh, a commandment. Right? Upon all Jews. And he bases that relying on Numbers chapter, this is the Hebrew Bible, book of Numbers chapter 33, um, where Mo, uh, God is talking to Moses, and in the biblical text, you have the story of God talking to Moses, and they're about to go in and conquer Canaan, right? They're wandering in the desert, and they're about to go into Canaan and conquer it, and, and the Lord said to Moses, saying, speak to the Israelites, say to them, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their figured stones, destroy all their cast images, demolish all their high places. You shall take possession of the land and settle it, for I have given you the land to possess. In the Hebrew Bible, you have two acknowledgments. One, that the Jews were commanded to go and settle in Canaan, and two, that there were already people there. Okay, so the Jews were told by God, go to this land, I'm giving it to you, kill everybody in there, knock down other stuff, and it's now yours. Right? And this biblical claim is the claim that was used by Zionists, right? by, by Jews who, fit, who say, no, that's still a valid argument today. We Jews should go to Jerusalem and occupy the land. We should be not just Jews, but we should be Jews in the traditional Holy Land, which is great if you're a Zionist Jew, not so great if you're a Palestinian who's been living in this place and calling it your home for hundreds of years. Right? whether it be under the Ottomans or whether it be under you know, the, the Brits or you know, whoever it was. So if you're those people in the land and somebody else comes up and says, uh, sorry, God gave us this land, you got to go, typically you don't say, ah, I'll pack up it. Usually you put up a fight, and that's, that's what's continuing to this day. Now, I would argue it's not all religious. Today it's very nationalistic. Uh, what their, uh, Palestinians now want there to be a state of Palestine recognized by the world with rights on an equal level with Israel. State of Israel has the state of Israel today, right? Which wasn't, which you know, we'll talk about next week, which wasn't always the case. But when somebody shows up and says, God has given us this land, usually that starts a dispute. Whether you're religious or not, you still point to that oftentimes. Uh, to, as, as, a, as a reason or a rationale for it. So you've got here at least the beginnings of it. You could say that Nachmanides is one of the first Zionists. Okay? Because he's saying Aliyah, that is the idea of going up to Jerusalem is incumbent upon all Jews. Right? And he actually went there. He was actually kicked out of Spain. Nachmanides was, uh, he was Spanish by birth. And um, he used to really give these severe polemics, these really severe, harsh sermons, if you will, against Christians. Spain is kind of a Christian territory there. And uh, Nachmanides is actually really arguing against Christianity, and they kicked him out of Spain. He says, well, Jews should be in Israel anyway. Jews should be in, pardon me, in Jerusalem anyway. Well, I'll make Aliyah. And he, and he, and he died there. He, he lived out the rest of his life there. But something else happened with Nachmanides. So not only is Jews being Jewish in Jerusalem, a commandment according to Nachmanides. Um, but he is a mystic. Unlike Maimonides, right, who was also a rabbi and a teacher of the law and who interpreted in a very rationalistic sense uh, the, the, 
you know what halakha is? Halakha is it's a Jewish law. So here's our Hebrew Bible. Here's what the laws are, and I'm going to tell you how to apply those laws. Maimonides did that a bit more rationally. Maimonides was a mystic. So he was one of the first ones to actually take this and say, you know what, there's a mystical element behind this as well. Right? And it's basically what becomes uh, Kabbalah or Kabbalah, okay? which is a, a big overarching term for Jewish mysticism, any form of Jewish mysticism. Right? And it's very trendy uh, these days. You see like very white, very Western people like Madonna walking around. Madonna, uh, uh, I saw I saw one photograph on a TMZ website, not that I read the TMZ website, um, but Britney Spears was carrying around a book, uh, a Kabbalist book, and it's like, okay, that's great, I mean, to each, to each their own. But it's a, it's a form of Jewish mysticism. That is, the text may give us this command and tell us something, but there's a, there's a hidden layer behind it. Maybe we should count the number of letters see if that tells us anything. Or why did he choose this word? Or why does this word, why is this word misspelled? Or maybe it's not just misspelled because the scribe made a mistake. Maybe it's misspelled because there's hidden meaning in it. And of course, once you go mystic, uh, you start to come together, bring together all different kinds of thoughts and ideas. So this all starts here with Nachmanides. And what he's done, what Nachmanides does, is he begins to spiritualize the concept of Jerusalem, which isn't that much different and what's going on with the Mamluks around him, right? The Mamluks are, are basically not seeing Jerusalem as an administrative center, right? Or as a uh, some kind of political capital, but they see it as this religious ideological center. And Nachmanides is doing the same thing, spiritualizing Jerusalem, but from a Jewish standpoint. Now the Christians had done this years before. Um, when they said, you know, there's going to be this new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, this type of thing. Uh, when, especially when Jesus goes away, and now, you know, what do you do with a Messiah who's not around anymore, who do go before Rome? Well, it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual idea, it's a spiritual kingdom, right? The Christians have done this, and now we begin to see Judaism uh, become spiritualized in a sense, at least according to Nachmanides. Um, what else do I want to tell you about um, really spiritualized Jerusalem temple? Zion became kind of one and the same with the divine presence. It's the final innermost stage on the path to God. Now, what had Zion been in the past? <coughs> A physical place, right? The eastern hill. The Christians kind of moved it over to the western hill. You can call Mount Zion today, it's still kind of, they'll take you to the western hill. Um, the Crusaders tried to bring it back to the Eastern Hill, but Mount Zion is still the Western Hill today. And a spiritualized understanding of Jerusalem, uh, of Jerusalem says, no, 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 Zion is the Divine Presence, or the Shekinah, Shekinah, which is kind of this concept of God as presence. Shekinah is, is the presence of God. Okay? And it's a concept that can move around, and they see Zion as, as this and one of the same. So, as a Kabbalist, as one who uh, does, uh, oh, you can actually make spiritual aliyah. So you're not necessarily physically going to Jerusalem and going up to the top, but you're doing it spiritually. You're doing it in your mind, in a mystical sense, if you will. This this is what Nachmanides uh, brings during this period. Any questions about Nachmanides? So we see Christianity is kind of spiritualized Jerusalem. The Mamluks are trying to make it into at least an ideal, a religious ideal. And now it's happening in, in, in uh, the Jewish tradition. But you also get Jews beginning to move to Jerusalem. This idea of Zionism, physical Zionism, going to Jerusalem and being Jewish there uh, begins. And then we transition into what we call Ottoman. Jerusalem, or the Ottoman period, which brings us all the way up to last century, from 1516 to 1918. The Ottomans come through and take Constantinople in 1453. Selim the first, Selim the first defeats the Mamluks in uh, 1517 in Marjdabi. This is in northern Syria. And 
and Jerusalem is peacefully surrendered in 1516 from the Mamluk, from Mamluk control to Ottoman control. And the Ottomans stayed there about 400 years. Um, what do we know about the Ottoman administration? Turkish Ottoman kingdom flourished in the 16th century, and Jerusalem was under a strong centralized government. As, as I said, it lasted for a long, long time. It wasn't until World War I uh, that the Ottoman Empire is destroyed, and we'll talk, this is, this is uh, Monday's lecture, and it's carved up and given to those people who won in World War I, specifically the French and the British. But that's next week's lecture, so we will not look too far ahead. That's the end of the Ottoman Empire. Um, one of the key figures, and we'll look a little bit more at him now, is uh, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent who ran from 1520 to 1566. Jerusalem was later lost towards the end, just for a brief time during the Ottoman period. Jerusalem was lost to Muhammad Ali in Egypt. This is not, before you ask, <laughs> Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, the boxer. This was where, this is from whom uh, he took his, his Muslim name. Remember, Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay at first. Uh, anyways, uh, in Egypt, but it's quickly restored in 1840 to Ottoman control. And it was, began to be revived with building and structure following the building of the Suez Canal in 1869. Again, that's Egyptian. It's the Suez Canal down in Egypt. So this is what I want you to know mainly about the Ottoman Empire. We're going to look a little bit more in depth at the Suleiman Pretty peaceful place, pretty pretty much under control. 400 years and not much, not much going on. Again, that's because it wasn't really a big political or uh, uh, military center. It, be, it, had, it had fully transitioned to a religious center. Jerusalem has now, all the way back from the beginning, from the Canaanite period, has basically become this mythos, this this religious ideal. We're now three major faiths. Let's look at Sulaiman. Question? Okay. He likes his hats. His Imperial Majesty, the Grand Sultan, Commander of the Faithful, and successor of the Prophet of the Lord of the Universe, Sulaiman the First. That's a mouthful of a title. Uh, nicknamed Suleiman the Magnificent or Suleiman the Lawgiver, reigned for 46 years. Um, and he was he's understood to be the, the greatest ruler of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, what does he do to Jerusalem? This isn't an Islamic history class, this is a Jerusalem class. What does he do? He repairs and enlarges the aqueducts at the Sultan's Pool. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. So Many of you have asked throughout this class, where did the modern day walls of Jerusalem come from? They're Ottoman, a lot of them were built by Suleiman here. We'll look at some of them. Specifically, two miles long, 40 feet high, 34 towers, 70 gates. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, trying to make it a safe place. He has an extensive campaign to refurbish the Haram and all of his monuments. Um, and he replaces mosaics on the exterior of the Dome of the Rock with Syrian titles. So he does noodle a little bit, noodle is a technical <coughs> he noodles a little bit with uh, some of the um, inscriptions on the outside of the Dome of the Rock. He renovates the markets and rebuilds them. <coughs> he builds the Kasaki Sultan Complex, which is a huge public charity for Jerusalem's inhabitants. He's really taking care of the people, trying to do something good for the folks there. It includes a bakery, a market, a mausoleum. And his work in Jerusalem parallels that, uh, parallels the work in Mecca and Medina, and really does cement Jerusalem as the third greatest city in all of Islam. He really builds it up into a magnificent city again. Yeah? This title magnificent added, added after he died. It's kind of it's, a, it's it's like Herod the Great, right? It's, it's kind of what he's referred to later. One would one would hope that he would you know 
usually when you when you get some kind of honor that you, you kind of hope that you get to experience that before. I don't know if he was called that during his reign. Um, his father, Selim the first, was called the Grim. If that's any, if that's any, uh, Selim the Grim. Uh, but this is uh, Suleiman the Um His father wanted to make sure that Suleiman uh, had no problems uh, as the ruler of the empire. So his father had all of his brothers put to death. So the next time uh, you get in the fight, well, let's put it this way. When you have kids, and the three or four kids are fighting with one another, just pick one and kill the rest. And then that's how you know that they'll never be fighting among the kids, and that kid will go on to be successful. Right? That's one approach. That's one parenting approach. I like you the best, so. Uh, actually, this wasn't uncommon. It, let's not pick on, on selling the grin. Um, this wasn't uncommon. Herod, Herod obviously did this a lot. Um, a lot of the Israelite kings did this. Right? They'd pick a son and then to get rid of uh, other rivals, uh, you, you'd either kill them or exile them. Uh, this is very much uh, what goes on today in a lot of monarchies. The one son is uh, becomes kind of the heir to the throne, and the other one either voluntarily says, you know what, I'm going to go work for the military somewhere else. Or he'll put himself into an exile. So a lot of times the heirs to thrones, uh, once an heir is chosen, the other one either self-exiles himself and gets an allowance and moves to Paris and, and never leaves, just lives on his life. In case something happens to the heir, he can come back and make a claim. Uh, or they're killed. establishes a Sharia court. What is Sharia, or what is Sharia law? Anybody know? Anybody want to take a guess at it? You hear it a lot of times. Yeah, what, what does it mean, Islamic law? Yeah? Isn't that like following the way Muhammad lived? More specific to Muhammad, although this, this text comes from, is said to come from Muhammad. What in particular? The Quran and all of the, the later writings that were based upon the Quran. This is the idea. Uh, we, we hear about it uh, in, in Western culture about religious fundamentalists, right? People who say the Bible should be the foundation of all law in the United States. If the Bible says it, we should make it a, a, a law. And, and other people will say, actually, we have a separation of church and state just because the Bible says something. Um, like, you know, stone your kids and kill them if they talk back to parents, things like that. I'd have three people in this class, maybe, if, if we enforced a lot of these biblical laws. Uh, but that's the same idea. The, the Quran uh, and these traditions are not only to be the, the religious law, but the law of the land, the administrative law. Okay. So a lot of, and I, and I don't want to paint anybody, I don't want to misrepresent or mischaracterize, but a lot of uh, what you hear about the Taliban uh, tries to establish a Sharia law, or Iran, modern Iran, with the, with the courts, uh, with the, what do they call them, the, the supreme leader, you know, there's Ahmadinejad, right? Uh, but then there's also the supreme council that sits above him, that kind of says, here's what we're going to allow, here's what we won't allow. And they have the real power in modern Iran. This is the idea of Sharia law. There's Islamic law that sits above everything else. It's both religious and administrative. Um, Jewish refugees are actually encouraged to settle in Jerusalem and restore the city. Here you have an idea of, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a Muslim and I'm, uh, I'm going to rule this city as a Muslim, but I'm also going to encourage, I'm not going to be antagonistic towards Jews, I'm going to encourage them to come and, and to settle here in the city. And so what we see in 1553, the population is 13,384 according to the records, including basically 1,600 Jews, which is tripled from only 25 years earlier. So we begin to see, here we go, a, an Islamic ruler who's actually sympathetic and encouraging Jews to settle uh, in the town. In 1535, David de Rossi writes, here we are not in exile, 
as in our own country, there are no special Jewish taxes. Remember Hadrian put a special tax on the Jews early on, you know, that way after they destroyed the, the temple? Um, he says, we don't have to pay a special tax for being Jewish here in Jerusalem. And this is under an Islamic leader. So here you have an example of not plurality. It's, there's, there's no doubt who's in control. But the idea is that Jews are living under Islamic rule, and it seems to be okay. Any questions? Any questions? Okay. Um, you have all, we mentioned, uh, and I'll just put these up here very quickly, you have restorations of the Haram, which coincided with the granting of concessions to foreign rulers and religious groups abroad and in Jerusalem. So what am I trying, what, what point am I trying to hammer home? You need to get this idea out of your head that Islamic rulers, Islamic, Islamic leaders, are only, even, even those um, practicing Sharia law, are opposed to all other faiths. Right? Sometimes it's, it, it is an interpretive process. Sometimes you get them that are per persecuting all other faiths, and sometimes you have those that say, don't rebel, don't question my authority, right? Uh, pay your taxes, and have your way. Do what you want. They also usually immediately proceed with all the restoration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which means that the Christians are being allowed to function in Jerusalem just as well. As I said earlier, there are examples of Christian, Jewish, and Islamic rule in these places that are both tolerant of other faiths and are both, uh, both persecuted other faiths. And here you have one uh, that appears to not have a problem with Jews settling in Jerusalem and practicing their religion. All right, let's look at actually some of the stuff here. Ottoman architecture, what is this? You should know this, you should know this hands down. The biggest, most magnificent gate in the old city of Jerusalem, the Damascus Gate, good. It's the largest of the seven gates of Jerusalem. We'll look at some of these slides uh, next week. Located on the northern side, also called the Gate of the Column. Like, and like in the model map. We saw the model map earlier. Um, and the defenses included uh, little slits for firing at attackers, thick doors, and an opening for boiling oil. Right? That's one of the things you do. If you can build your wall high enough and you see people coming up, you just take a boiling hot liquids and oils and things, pour over the side and just scald the people standing trying to knock down the door below. Um, you can't really see that in the picture. But it's got little slits in the wall, and then you can shoot little, I think they're called keyholes, or uh, uh, who does medieval, medieval castles? And you can shoot arrows out of them, but they're very small, so it's hard to get something through them. And of course, this is from a modern building nowadays. But you're looking down, they've turned the front of this into a huge plaza today. And then you go in, you take a left, and then you take a right, and then you can go into the city. Very rare is the occasion where an ancient gate will just go straight into the city. So the idea of the drawbridge coming down in the U.S. not not so in this part of the world, uh, because you want to be able to, uh, once they, if they do manage to knock down the door, you want to make them turn left, right? Because you fill up the inside of this gate complex. It's a big, thick complex with soldiers. So you're going through the gate, but in order to get into the city, you've got to turn left, and now you're exposing your side, and these guys over here are either going to shoot you or stab you or something. Then you've got to turn right. It's harder to get uh, military equipment, things like that, into the city. Um, it's also a good place uh, to get your pocket pocket pick. Uh, so go through here. Now I always tell everybody in any part of in any part of Jerusalem today, um, they're looking for tourists. They're looking for college kids that are checking out the guys or the girls around, and they got their cameras and their stuff. And they look. They love that. Cut the strap, take stuff, little kids sell it, right? And it's not just Jerusalem, right? This is any any major city that you go to today, but it's very dark. You go in, you take a right, take a, uh, take a left, take a right, and then you go down to the main, and you can see the, the city here. Damascus Gate, Suleiman. Uh, the Jaffa Gate. Now, here's an interesting story. The Jaffa Gate was also built up. Um, you often see this picture. Do I have another picture of it? No. No. The Jaffa Gate is actually here. You come in, and then you take a take a left, and you go into the city. 
But an interesting thing happened to the gate. The, the tradition is always that you walk into Jerusalem. You always walk into Jerusalem. So for instance, remember Caliph Omar? Omar, when he, when he conquered the city in 638, he walked into Jerusalem. Okay? Now, when the Germans came, when Kaiser Wilhelm II, he insisted upon making a grand entrance to Jerusalem with his entourage and a couple thousand people. So um, a low part of the city wall was torn down, and the crusader moat that went around this, the, the wall uh, was filled in. So the German Kaiser Wilhelm II and his big old long car, um, uh, pardon me, uh, his, on his big old uh, stallion and his spiked helmet and all this stuff, could just march in with a triumphal entry. It'd be better. It'd be better. Uh, it'd be a better photo op if you didn't have to go through the little gate. If you could just. So what they did is they punched a massive hole in the wall so that he could just go straight on through into the city on horseback with all the fanfare. Same thing. So there's a big hole next to the Jaffa Gate today. Yeah. And as you can see, you can you can drive into it. They said, well, since we got the hole, we'll just leave it. <laughs> but um, this story is told because when the English when the English showed up, uh, General Allenby, who took Jerusalem in 1917, got to the city gate, got off, and walked through the city gate. And his reason for uh, for was, I'm not going to ride into the city of Jerusalem when my Lord and Savior uh, went in on a donkey. Right, so like, you know, the Kaiser, the German uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, went on horseback. Jesus went on a donkey. So I'm just going to walk. Thank you very much. While he's conquering the city, right? So the tradition is that you walk into the city of Jerusalem. But that's the story behind the hole in the wall next to the Jaffa Gate. We're talking some big walls here, and you can see, excuse me, the earlier foundation. A lot of the stones that were around there, they just built up right on top of that. And you can always tell differences in the construction, right? Like, for instance, you can tell the difference between these stones and these stones. Right? Archaeologists love this, because you can see usually, remember the Herodian stones, the older stones that don't have as good border technology? Big stones. But as you get uh, as you get better technology, you can use smaller stones, which are easier to move, and then you can build higher walls, things like that. Um, here's a view of the northwest wall of the old city. So we're talking pretty significant walls all around. And again, this is the old city within the city of Jerusalem. Don't get confused with all of Jerusalem. Not, not all of Jerusalem is in the old city, right? Most of Jerusalem, a large majority of Jerusalem, is outside of this, of this old city. Um, here's St. Stephen's Gate, again, built during this period. Very pretty. It's got all you can see. You can see them a little better here. See the little, little keyholes here? And then, of course, the Western Wall. Now, Suleiman, we already talked about the idea of religious tolerance. Suleiman actually gives the Western Wall to the Jews who are beginning to settle there as a place of prayer. Now, think about that. Here, you guys can have this wall. You can pray here. It's close to where the temple used to be. We're maintaining control of the top of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and of the, of the rock and of the chain. But you can have the wall. So guess what happens? The uh, area of the wall begins to attract a lot of the myths that used to be associated with the temple. Remember, Eliada makes this very clear. Uh, and it's, it's not Eliada comes up with a theory and then you have to abide by it. It's Eliada's you know, making observations. That once the Western Wall becomes the holiest place in Judaism, as close as you can get to the old temple uh, without going up, um, this now begins to attract all the myths in the Jewish tradition. So Suleiman himself cleared the site and purified it. The Shekinah, and the Shekinah, the presence of the Lord, came and settled there after the destruction of the temple. So you get this tradition that when the temple gets destroyed, God immediately moved to that section of the wall. And then the idea is waiting for the Jews to come and start, start worshiping at the wall. Um, uh, tradition is that uh, the gate of heaven is situated directly above the western wall. So that becomes literally the what? If you're reading your Eliyahu. It becomes the access point, right? The, the, the western wall. No longer the temple, the western wall is. It's now the holiest place in Jesus. 
Uh, Moshe Yerushalami says uh, that it is the one wall left from the temple. So if I put on an on a, on a exam, for instance, true or false, um, the western wall is the one wall left from the temple. You know that that is false, even though Moshe Yerushalami said that it was. So be careful then. Um, this is the western retaining wall of the Temple Mount that Herod the Great built. But it's now the holiest place in all Judah. It's not a wall left standing from the temple itself. And it, of course, becomes the symbol of the destruction of the temple. The, the wall kind of takes the place of the temple. This is a reminder of what once sat on top of it. And I've shown you pictures of the western wall. Right? You can go, you can go YouTube, and you can look up Western Wall, and you can see hours and hours of footage of things that go on at the wall. Massive stones. You write your prayer. You stick it in there. As long as you cover your head, you can go in. They don't check you for what faith you are. You just, you can just go there and pray. Um, so Saladin had said earlier that. Um, the Jews were allowed to resettle there, and he was proclaimed as the new Cyrus. Remember the new Cyrus? Why did they call Saladin? Now, this is earlier, right? Saladin, when he came and took Jerusalem with the, from the Crusaders, allowed the Jews to settle there. It was called the new Cyrus. Why? This is a great question. Why do they call him the new Cyrus? Cyrus allowed the Jews to come back. Allowed the Jews to come back, and he wasn't himself Jewish. Jewish. He was Persian, remember? Cyrus was the Persian king. But Isaiah, the Hebrew Bible, refers to Cyrus, a Persian, as a Shia, right, as the Messiah. So because Saladin was also gracious and allowed the Jews to come back, he was called the new Cyrus. And the Ashkelonic Jews uh, were given the Mahrivi quarter, which became the Jewish quarter. Uh, Judah Halevi, which is, uh, who was a uh, physician from Toledo, not Toledo, Ohio, Spain uh, was fleeing Spain, tried to make Aliyah, and he argued that the Jews must return to their quote-unquote land of their fathers. We begin to see time and again allusions to biblical texts, right? Trying to encourage Jews to go back and migrate to Jerusalem. Again, we're talking about the beginnings of, of Zionism. And risk their lives for Zion so that the Shekinah could return to Jerusalem and the redemption of the world would begin. So now we're getting myths built on top of myths, built on top of biblical tradition, right? This idea that if we can all get Jews to move back to this to Jerusalem, then the redemption of the world, which was promised way, way back to Abraham, right? Whoever you will bless, I will bless, and who you curse, I will curse, this promise that was made to Abraham, can actually come to fruition. Jerusalem is understood to be the gate of heaven, where all Jews need to stake their rightful claim. And Maimonides, we, we talked about Nachmanides. Maimonides was a Jewish philosopher who said that Jerusalem should be and is the center of all Jewish people. Jewish kingdom and Jewish law had to be based on the temple, which is again a physical call to move back to Jerusalem. The Haram must be treated as if the temple still stood. And the divine presence could not be banished from the Temple Mount. So you start to get these ideas, these religious ideas of Jerusalem being the eternal temple, the eternal place of the presence of God and therefore of all Jews. Now keep in mind, this is during the period where Muslims control the city. And we, we see evidence that uh, the Islamic rulers were actually very conciliatory to Jews and Christians at the time. So now you, it makes sense that some Jews would say, you know what, we're going to actually move here and take this back, right? But you just see it religiously. You don't see it militarily yet. But you see this idea that Judaism, Jerusalem, the wall, is going to become the religious center of all Judaism. Got this? A couple more. Maybe one minute. Um, then we talked about Nachmanides. Um, begins after the Crusaders. Um, as they kicked Jews out of Spain, they began to resettle in Jerusalem. 
which only adds to this idea that Jews should come to Jerusalem, Jews should take up residence here. You even get uh, Shabtai Zebi declaring himself the Messiah. Right? Jesus wasn't the only Jew that ever claimed to be the Messiah. There were lots of them running around when Jesus uh, was living. The, you know, Bar Kokhba we talked about basically painted himself as Messiah. Um, you've had lots of different people, including modern people today, claiming to be the Messiah. Okay, so there's, here's one that claims himself. And that everyone should, should go to Jerusalem. As we move into the 19th century, right, we see the Europeanization of, of Jerusalem. Literally, um, in uh we see European Jews beginning to move to Jerusalem and settle there and build there. So in 1860, you, you get this new settlement okay, um, that was initiated by uh, Moses Montefiore, a British Jew with funding from uh, other Jews. Uh, specifically, we see some American Jewish money coming into it. So now we're beginning to see not just the Jews that have been living in the Near East, but European Jews beginning to follow the foundation set by Maimonides and Nachmanides and these other Jewish rabbis under Islamic rule. You, be, you begin to see uh, European Jews funded by some American Jews beginning to move back and settle just to the west of the old city of Jerusalem. They built 20 initial residential units. Um, they were actually uh, asked to pray for their American benefactors. You're supposed to pray once a day for those who are actually helping to fund this. And the windmill in Western Jerusalem, which is still there today, kind of became the symbol for a European Jewish settlement on the western side of Jerusalem. The interesting transition, though, is that uh, in 1882, about then, it kind of marks the beginning of the idea of secular Zionist immigration. That is not necessarily religious Jews, but ethnic Jews, people of Jewish physical descent, beginning to move there to Jerusalem. So while Nachmanides wanted to make the idea of uh, being Jewish very mystical, and that you can make Aliyah in your mind, and you can, Jerusalem's still very important, that you can do all this in your mind, there began to be other calls to be Jewish and to occupy Jerusalem, and now you've got basically secular Zionism. Not necessarily doing it for religious purposes, but this is where Jews are going to live, this is where we're going to settle, and you begin to see this movement towards um, both religious and ethnically Jewish people living on the west, especially on the western side of the city of Jerusalem. Let me show you one more slide, and I, I just want to show it to you the kind of statistics to back up what I'm saying. Okay. Any questions? Let me show you one more slide. In yellow, I put the majority of people. So the majority is going to be in yellow here. Back to go back. I saw some. This is already up on the website. You can print it out. You had Crusader Jerusalem, which basically expelled everybody, but the Christians felt everybody the Christians. Mamluk Jerusalem had a population with about 2,000 Muslims and some Jews and some Christians. Ottoman Jerusalem, which we talked about today, later today, earlier today. Um, you have a period of tolerance between Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And according to Ottoman census records, in 1553, you had 1650 Jews, 10,000 Muslims, and 1650 Christians. So an overwhelming majority of Muslims, but equal minorities of Jews and Christians. By 1800, you had Christians and Jews, 2700, 2000, but only 4,000 Muslims. As I said, and this is why I'm saying um, Jerusalem just wasn't that big of a deal, at least not as an administrative center. It was a religious center, yes. But we begin to see some balancing out here. And by 1845, only 45 years later, with all of this new Zionism, this idea of Jews should go to Jerusalem and live there and settle there, we now see, even though the city's still under Islamic rule, the majority of the population, 7,100 
people are Jews. 5,000 Muslims. Now you've got about 3,400 Christians living there. We'll learn on Tuesday about the British Mandate after World War I and what happened. Now you're really seeing it take off. 33,000 Jews living in Jerusalem, only 13,000 uh, Muslim Arabs, and then uh, you've got 40,000 Christians. By 1931, 51,000 Jews, 19,000 Muslim Arabs, 19,000 Christians. And of course, by 1944, 90, almost 100,000 Jews, the Muslims are trying to come in there and, and so Jerusalem's becoming a bigger deal. Again, this is on Monday, we'll talk about this. And then of course, uh, you can't see that at the bottom. Uh, it, gets, it gets even more from the Israeli census records. You can see that Jews have really, Zionism has fully taken root, and there's this call for all Jews to come. And we get the beginnings of the modern state of Israel. But that will be on Tuesday. Any questions? Thank you, Sue, for your